Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Coming up on this week's show, Final Fantasy gets a pixel remaster. The hottest AI comes to your old PC. And we get some Microsoft memories from Dave Plummer. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of my favourite books they've done recently is The Games That Weren't. Reprints are due this August, boasting never-before-seen screenshots, pre-production art and exclusive interviews, delving into the mysteries of video games that never saw the light of day. So you can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. And with our mates at PCBWay, who offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do so many other services, 3D printing, injection moulding, and they're huge supporters of the retro gaming community. So get an instant quote right now for your project at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 373, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And very nice to have you joining us for another weekly look back at what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last seven days. Of course, we bring you up to speed on everything that's been going on. You don't have to Google around and check all the news websites, but you leave it to us. We do it for you every week. And of course, we bring you a very special guest in the second half of the show as well. And I've got to say, the interview that I did this week, so I sat down last week with our special guest this week, and that... Chat for about 45 minutes with him. It was one of the most interesting interviews I think I've ever done on this show. Now, I know you guys weren't involved, but I know you are very familiar with our guests this week, particularly you, Ravi. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, am I right in saying he he created Task Manager? Well, I guess this week is uh, Dave Plummer. Now, he um, he's a retired Microsoft software engineer. Today, he runs a really interesting YouTube channel called Dave's Garage, or uh, Dave's Garage, if you're from that side of the pond. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, we kind of go through all of his background, you know, when he originally got into computers when he was a kid, and kind of his journey into Microsoft, because I mean, he started like programming games and stuff at home for fun. And then by the time he went to Microsoft, I mean, he'd released some stuff on the Commodore 64 and the Amiga before that. I mean, he's a massive Amiga nut. So you'll find this one interesting, Ravi. Um, but then, yeah, he worked at Microsoft for several years and worked on some technologies that really have become such a big part of every Windows user's lives I, I in the think modern day. you could not survive. I, that, that's probably the most regular uh, application that I used on Windows was a task manager, you know, with Control-Alt-Delete and kind of yep. being able to <laughs> kill programs that were taking up too much memory. That, that was a, like an essential tool. And uh, also Space Cadet Pinball as well, which I know you're a real big fan of. Yeah, I mean, obviously that game was originally a Maxis game back in about 1995, then kind of got brought into Microsoft. They released it on the Plus Pack at first, I think, didn't they, on Windows 95. And then um, Dave worked on the port to Windows NT that then became the foundation for the version that I think most people probably played on Windows XP. So, you know, just the fact that he went back to making games at Microsoft, you know, was a really interesting story as well. And 
his claim to fame is, and he's got a great video on this, but I kind of get the story from him as well, that he managed to sneak Microsoft Bob into every copy of Windows XP. So uh, was Microsoft Bob the operating system that they did that was really visual, or was he a character that came from the operating system? Was it the dog? Yeah, well, the dog kind of came out of Microsoft, Bob. You're right. This was 1995 it came out. It was basically uh, an operating system that was meant to be really user-friendly. So, um, you know, everything was, I think, what, what do they call it? Skeuomorphism or something? It was, it was it? images, Where, wasn't it? You were kind of yeah. like in a living room and you had different images and you'd select them and they'd represent the programs. Yeah, so your computer was a house. And you had rooms, so, you know, if you wanted to um, open a word processor, you'd uh, go to your desk and pick up your pen and paper, and that would open the word processor program. If you wanted to open your spreadsheet, you'd open the checkbook. It was really that era when, you know, they were desperately just trying to make computers more friendly for the average person. Obviously, it was a massive flop. And then, yeah, one of the Microsoft Bob characters, Rover, he's the little dog Ah, that appeared on Windows XP. Um, And there's also Clippet, who was, you know, Clippy. Famously, so there was a bit of Bob, Bob legacy in the other OSs. Yeah, well, basically, he managed to sneak some code from Microsoft Bob into 500 million copies of Windows XP. <laughs> so um, everyone had a bit of Bob in their life and didn't know about it. So we'll get that story and lots more as well with our special guest. You're going to really enjoy this week's one. Dave Plummer, he'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. And he's not the only guest that we've got on the podcast this week because uh, we do have someone else who is a, a very good friend of the show. Hello, Tommy. Hello. And it's really fun to be here. Thank you. Well, very nice to have you on. Now, this is a lot of something that we started recently. This is where we, um, once a month or so, we invite someone from our patrons community to basically be the fourth voice on the show. So, you know, you come on, you chill out with us for half an hour, chat about some of the news stories, and also bring one of your stories along as well. And I know you've got a really interesting one to tell us about in just a bit, but I mean, if anyone that's been on our patrons hangouts, Tommy, will know you. You're all such a big part of it, you know, great fun to talk to as well. But for people that maybe haven't joined us on there, kind of briefly give us your background in in gaming then. You know, what's kind of your background in it? Where did it all start for you? I actually started with uh, consoles, and since I'm from Sweden... I used to call it uh, Nintendo Island in the Sega Sea that is Europe. <laughs> so I started with uh, a Nintendo and NES back when I was probably eight or something like that. There, uh, I recommend everyone to check up on Sweden's Nintendo's history and Bergsala. It's really fascinating stuff. But had my Nintendo and later on a Nintendo 64 and... Some computers, Macintosh for the most part, had some friends with Amigas and Commodore 64, but mostly a console guy growing up. And on later in later years, I have started to mess around with the old micros and such. Yeah, it's one thing I love when we're on the patrons hangouts as well, because, you know, I'm quite a big Mac guy these days. I've been for about 20 years, but I know you grew up using the Mac as well. So it's always interesting to kind of have those conversations too. And I think that's one thing we love about doing this, just getting people on from all around the world. And, you know, our experiences were so different back then. So it's definitely going to be interesting to hear some of your input into the news this week, Tommy. So thank you so much for coming on and joining us this week. No problem. And let's jump into the first news story then. It's been a really busy week for news, so uh, no hanging about. First one is, I mean, we, we do love talking about these demakes, don't we? And um, this one looks like 
a massive collection. Final Fantasy is getting a Pixel Remastered series next week. So tell us about this, Joe. Wait, before we go in, can you explain to me, like the orders of the Final Fantasies on this because <laughs> I know that the history of Final Fantasy there was like an American version there was a, a Japanese version and this apparently has uh, six titles that are getting remastered so this so which ones very are good, they and very yeah. very good question there Ravi really good question so um so this is the Final Fantasy pixel remaster as Dan says and it's a remaster of the original Final Fantasy one two, three, four, five, and six. And you were very right, Ravi. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was a real kind of mix-up um, or mix-around, if you will, with like the Japanese versions, the American versions, and the European versions. So if you go back about 10 years, I would have probably been able to tell you exactly which one was which. <laughs> uh, these days, my memory isn't quite what it used to be because I can't quite remember which ones did and didn't come out in Europe. But um, I think these, it was like one and two, but the, it was just the numbering was totally different. So the like numbering the was all wrong. Was, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So number, I think number six in America was number three and number one was number one. And number two might have been Final Fantasy four in Japan, but was number two in America. It was, it was a real mess, but this, they, they kind of, they did away with all of that after Final Fantasy seven for the PS1 and now they number them correctly. And since okay. these games have kind of, re-come out and stuff like that because a lot of these have been re-released on PS1 and you know and on PC and on mobile and stuff like that in the past Square Enix do name them correctly now luckily so they are the proper order if that makes sense and it is they are numbered correctly as far as I know <laughs> so it is one two three four five and six so one two and three are on uh remasters of the Nintendo games and four five and six are remasters of Super Nintendo games which obviously use pixel graphics so these are pixel remasters. So, you know, they've had their the HD, you know, re-release, the HD upgrades. Um, I don't know if they look too clean, kind of like looking at them, because they look really, really clean. And sometimes that kind of like pixel art looks nice when it's a bit washed out, you know, on those old consoles mm. and stuff. But either way, it looks beautiful. It's coming out on April 19th uh, for the Switch and PS4. And these games are coming out separately. So they're going to be priced... They've only released it in dollars so far, so between $11 and $17. Or you can get all six of them in one pack for $75. So quite a hefty price tag, considering, you know, it's a bit like Sonic and Streets of Rage. These games have been re-released, you know, many, many times, but these are meant to be pixel-perfect, you know, like re-releases and stuff like that. So, And uh, Square Enix, a lot of the time, when they do re-release these old Final Fantasy games, they do try to make them a little bit more accessible for kind of like for modern audiences or more accessible for the likes of me who just hasn't got time to play, you know, these games for hundreds and hundreds of hours. So there is the ability to kind of like speed time up in the games so you can kind of skip through the battles and stuff like that. Or you can even make it so you can get double XP, you know, so you can change it so you get more experience, so you level up quicker, so you can get through battles much quicker, which I think is a nice touch. It's like they've got the um, Final Fantasy VII menus on it throughout. Yeah. And uh, the kind of old school menus have been chucked away in favour of that, which makes it seem more uniformed. Yeah. So um, the, so what they've done as well, so you are right there. So they have kind of like, so those menus are kind of through those games as well, but they've tidied it up. So they've made them more user-friendly as well. So it does say in the trailer, they've tidied the fonts up. They've just tidied like the navigation of it up and stuff like that, just to make it, like I said before, a much more accessible game. 
Um, now it's interesting because these did actually originally come out on PC in twenty one in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, but they've really taken their time to bring them to the Switch in PS four and not the Xbox, which is a little bit disappointing to me. But I can just play them on the Switch and I can play them on the go, I guess. To be fair, it doesn't look like the graphics are going to be too demanding and yeah. kind of push the Switch to its limits or anything, really. No. <laughs> yeah, and there is some new stuff as well. I'm reading here that they've apparently got like a rearranged music score as well. But one thing I really like is if you're a fan of the original chiptune music, you literally press a button and you can go back to the original, mm, which yeah. I think is quite a nice little touch because sometimes you do want to just have that option, don't you? Because music's such a big part of the experience, I think. Yeah, and you know what? It's really funny that you should you should say that because it is really nice that they've included that. So it's got these arranged orchestral soundtracks. You press a button and you get the original chiptunes. What really mm. annoys me is, and any excuse to talk about Resident Evil, I've been playing through the Resident Evil 4 remake, and if you want to play it with the original soundtrack, you have to buy it as a DLC for oh, like wow. £2. And that really frustrates me that a lot of like, you know, games are doing that these days, a lot of these remasters and stuff. And you're just like, if you're going to have it in there, just put it in there like we have with just this. Just greediness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it just feel yeah. a bit greedy. Well, obviously, Tommy, I mean, you're, you know, an NES Super Nintendo guy as well. I mean, probably the most famous RPG games on Nintendo yes, platforms. Are you a Final I, Fantasy fan? Well, I love the Final Fantasy games and I haven't finished one of them, not even number seven. So... <laughs> I will probably get this just because they're collected and for the reason that I can change the speed, change the XP, change mm. the rate uh, for the random encounters, which is one of the things that I'm not a fan of anymore since yeah. I became older. And uh, going back to the music and the ship tune, when you have those two options, this reminds me of when they remastered uh, Monkey Island and yeah. you had the options the of the new graphic or the old yeah. graphics and I just played the new graphics for one minute and then went, went straight back and I will probably do the same with the music and the ship tunes. That's it. It's nice to have that authentic original experience when you want it, isn't it? Yes. Um, and I was the same when I played the Monkey Island remasters as well. Although the only thing I didn't like about the Monkey Island one, the way they did that is, I would have liked a combination of the talking, you know, the, the speech acting yeah. over the original graphics. That would have been a perfect combination, I think. Yeah, it would. But I, I like this. Uh, I will. It's it's quite expensive, but I will probably buy it and um, probably start playing the games and then um, not finish them. <laughs> well, you know, I've said on the podcast myself, I've only uh, completed about ten video games in my life. So, uh, yeah, you're you're in good company here, Tommy. Don't worry. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think it's good. I, you know, people are talking. It's expensive, seventy four ninety nine. Um, but I mean, you do get six games for that. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of works out just over a tenner each. But, um, yeah, so it, it does look good. And from what I've seen, I mean, I haven't played, you know, I'm not a big RPG guy. Um, I did a little bit of looking around before on these. They've been quite well, well received on the PC. As you mentioned, Joe, they've been out on the PC for a year or two. Um, so I think it's nice to have this um, compilation released all together for um, consoles, apart from the Xbox. Sorry, Xbox fans. <laughs> um, but, yeah, if you want to get hold of this, uh, coming out uh, next week, April 19th. So I'll put a link to that and you can check out the trailer in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, something that um, I know Ravi has watched and I've watched as well. Have, have you seen it yet, Joe or Tommy? Have you watched the uh, the new Tetris movie? No, I haven't watched it. I'm so excited to watch it, but I still haven't. I'm glad you've watched it, Dan. <laughs> These yeah. guys need to catch up. It's such a good film. I can't stop I, um, promoting it, you know. I've not seen it, but I don't think a day's gone by since Ravi watched it like, have you watched Tetris yet? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was really interesting, obviously, the story of um, how the original Tetris got made in uh, Soviet Russia back in the day. I mean, you know, 
it was a really fascinating story and definitely it's my wife you know she's not into computer games at all but she found it really interesting we sat down you know it's a good film i think for anyone just who wants to hear kind of you know all the drama that went on behind it and you know at the end of the film she said uh, i used to play uh I used to play Tetris on my Game Boy. I didn't realise all that went into it. So it's a really interesting story. But one thing you do see when you watch the film is they have the original version yeah. of Tetris in there. And uh, Alexei Pajitnov, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, made back in 1984. Now, back then it was made on uh, an old Soviet computer called the Electronica 60. And that didn't have sprite graphics or anything like that. So the original version of Tetris, and you do see this in the movie, basically uses ASCII characters. It's a lot of kind of solid blocks and square brackets, isn't it? That's yeah, what the, and, the and, and that machine about. wasn't his as well. It was a part of the Soviet Academy of Sciences. And, mm. uh, you know, it was the actual Institute's machine. And um, he was creating it with the brackets, but also it wasn't as developed as the Tetris that we see today. There wasn't a scoring system on there. Um, it was just a basic concept in the idea of Tetris, but now that's become available online. So you can play it on an emulator if you haven't got uh, uh, an old Soviet uh, machine. But yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting when you watch the film and hear about a bit of the development. I mean, I'm not sure how much of the film was kind of put in there for, you know, kind of Hollywood drama, if you like. You know, there's a car scene, uh, a car chase scene. Yeah, I think that was a bit of the, the dramatic <laughs> stuff. They, they, you know, they need to kind of make it a bit more exciting, these films, yeah. But um, most of it was quite accurate. There's even one bit in there, though, where they talk about, you know, the fact that if you've got a few lines of, you know, if you've completed a couple of lines of Tetris, originally only one row would vanish at a time. And then, you know, in, in the movie, they show where we expanded that to like several lines. So it's interesting to kind of go back and see that original version of Tetris. And it's, it's as you'd expect it to be. It's green screen. You know, it's ASCII characters as well. And uh, this is to celebrate the launch of the Tetris movie on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, it's a promotional thing, really, but now you can actually play the original version of Tetris in your web browser without any, having to download emulators or anything like that. Joe's been trying it out. Is it quite different to your memories of the, the Game Boy version? Yeah, obviously I grew up on the Game Boy version and um, I have the Super Nintendo version, which came with Dr. Mario, which I'm, they're the two I'm most familiar with. And obviously it, it plays a lot slower and obviously I was trying to yeah. play it with my keyboard in the browser. Um, I wasn't very good with the arrow keys. And like, you have to press up to, you know, change the position of the, you know, change what direction the, the Tetris is like laying in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, and think that was, can it, use, I think you can use Z as well. Oh, can you use Z as well? Yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. That, but that really threw me off and I, I was playing terribly. But it's cool. It's a nice little like, you know, like... Uh, what's the word promotion for the film and it's cool mm. that it's there in your browser as well keep you busy at work when you're meant to be working <laughs> it's interesting because they're saying um tetris is the most ported video game in history on 65 mm. different platforms and i probably also think it might be the most cloned game in history i remember playing so many different versions of tetris even uh explicit versions of <laughs> Tetris as well. So, yeah, there was all I kinds. Mind boggles now, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see, a, a, you know, a pack with every single version of Tetris ever created. But legally, I guess something like that couldn't happen. It's just when you look at this, though, isn't it? And you see yeah, the original game, I mean, like many things, though, it's such a simple idea. But they're often the best ideas, aren't they? And it's, it's kind of one of those, you know, probably one of the earliest casual games, you know, where you didn't need to be a hardcore video games fan, anyone could just kind of pick it up 
which is very logical to play, I think. And we've kind of talked about that before that, I guess, you know, Tetris on the Game Boy was really the first game I remember seeing, you know, businessmen on trains playing it. Yeah. And one of the first games that almost feel impossible to put away while once you've started playing it. That's it, isn't it? And it's, and I think a lot of people are quite interested to see kind of where it came from. And obviously this movie will um, have a lot to do with that as well. But, you know, for a lot of us, kind of, you know, when I was a kid, I assumed it was an original Game Boy game. I didn't think it had any history before that. But, you know, learning about it and actually being able to play it, I think is really interesting. I think, I think it's that idea of kind of cleaning up or getting rid of something that like humans like, you know. I see these people yeah. playing like Jet Wash Simulator at the moment and I'm like, <laughs> you're spending the whole time just cleaning up a level of something. And I kind of see the same, you know, related with Tetris where you, you're cleaning the lines and uh, the unorganised stuff is a bit chaotic. I know Joe's a big fan of the Power Wash Simulator game. I, I, you know what, when Ravi said it then, I... I I had flashbacks to it. It was around this time last year, maybe a little bit later in the year. And yeah, I, I had a full addiction to that game. You know, I played it every night for like three weeks, four weeks, and then kind of had that realisation of like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> maybe I should get a job as a, as a yeah. power wash guy. You know, what that starts, stuff like that starts going through your brain. You're like, because at the time I was working in my old job, which I, I really couldn't stand my old job. And I was just like, I could go be a power wash person. Yeah, although sitting in your sitting in your PJs playing it on an evening is probably not quite the same as standing out in the pouring rain doing it in a IRL in real life. <laughs> Very <suppose>. true. <laughs> so, and actually, no, talking about this um, this original Tetris experience as well. Apparently, there's also a, a hack that's been made for the um, the NES that basically gives the 1989 version of the game uh, an electronic a 60 makeover, so it makes it the NES version of it look like the original. Um, Soviet version so uh, yeah it is really cool that you know the movie is now kind of getting a lot of people into kind of looking beyond the Game Boy and the NES and seeing the original version of it and you can play it really simply now so if you want to play that in your browser I will link it up in our show notes along with the rest of the stories as well now this one's very cool Tommy you spotted this one and uh, Donkey Kong I mean legendary game and it turns out that very soon in New York you'll be able to go to the Museum of Play and play Probably the biggest Donkey Kong arcade machine in the world. These big enough remind, for Donkey Kong. Big enough for Donkey Kong. These remind me of, you know, when you like, you know, Tom, you might not have this uh, in Sweden, but some bars where we're from in Nottingham, they have like the mm. giant Game Boys, like they're big, like giant Game Boys with big, like hand size, like, uh, you know, buttons. And this just reminds me of like being really drunk in a bar and you just see like a giant arcade machine and just like, wow. This, this thing's <laughs> like, they so they haven't built this yet, have they? It's just a concept at the moment, isn't Nintendo it? Nintendo are helping them with it, apparently. They're helping them with it. It's like, what, like, like 20 foot tall it's going to be? And like, I mean, I've just spotted now, it does actually have a little arcade stick, like a normal sized arcade stick <laughs> attached to it. But I was thinking like, how on earth are you meant to play this thing? Like it's huge. Well, it is, yeah, 370% bigger than the original cabinet. Um, it runs the motherboard from an original Donkey Kong cabinet, apparently, which is quite interesting. Oh, I okay. seem to do emulation or something in it, but apparently not. And there is, I mean, if you look at their Twitter, this is the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York. Um, who are constructing this massive Donkey Kong arcade cabinet. Um, but like you said, Tommy, big enough for King Kong to try out himself. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there is an image they've got of basically a little humanoid figure stood in front of the arcade machine, and it appears as some kind of platform that you can maybe climb up upon. <laughs> like maybe, I, I imagine a bit more advanced than a stepladder. 
but yeah. kind of along those lines, I think. So it's, what, it's like um, Billy Mitchell's wet dream. This is. <laughs> <laughs> What I found interesting uh, with this was that this was actually an, something that went uh, on uh, regular news, at least here in Sweden. Mm. And oh, cool! So I guess this this is what it takes to put video games in the news. There, either the big teams that win millions and millions of pounds, or the big crazy things. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I like these kind of ways of expanding older games, and you know, doing them on on a much bigger scale. And I guess it, you might also, it might be more of a kind of mass participation thing. If you've got a screen that everybody can stand around and, uh, you know, see, you might you might get quite a big audience using that. It could become the prime Donkey Kong machine for people to play on. But I mean, obviously Donkey Kong at the minute, I mean, he's obviously in the, the new Mario movie, which um, I think you're the only one that's seen it out of all of us, Tommy, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I have. But, uh, <laughs> I've seen people whinging online that he's, he's kind of been redesigned a bit. Is he a bit more like the, the Donkey Kong Country version now, isn't he, in, in the new movie? Yeah, he is totally Donkey Kong Country, which I didn't have a problem with because he was the first Donkey Kong I really experienced, I think. If I think Donkey Kong, I still think Donkey Kong Country. But yeah, it, they have a reference to the old one in the background. There is an arcade cabinet that... It's obviously Donkey Kong, but it's not Donkey Kong on it. It's like some kind of white jetty, but they have Jumpman. And so so they do some sort of throwback to the old one. And as um, uh, uh, we were talking earlier, Pixels as well. I remember they do a huge version of Donkey Kong in that as well. And was Donkey Kong in Wreck-It Ralph as well? I can't remember. Maybe maybe Ralph was kind of influenced by Donkey Kong. <laughs> But yeah, in terms of video game movies, though, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I still haven't seen the Mario film yet, but I think this is just tying quite well with it, you know, that, that he's kind of front of mind again for a lot of people. And uh, it just seems, you know, it's really interesting how Nintendo are getting involved in this as well. So um, no word yet about when it's going to be finished. Apparently it could be this summer. They reckon that they're aiming for about maybe end of June. Um, but if you want to check out the uh, the images so far, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just thinking, it's, I'm only five foot eight. I'm not going to be able to reach that joystick without some serious ladders to get up there, I don't think. It's made for me. Um, I'm, I'm a big guy. I'll sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it does look very cool, though. So if you want to check out the pictures so far, uh, those will be in this week's show notes as well. Now, obviously, the thing that's taken the world by storm at the moment, um, and, you know, this kind of just seemed like it came out of the blue a little bit recently. You know, the hot thing a year ago was, you know, everyone was talking about the metaverse and VR, and that's going to change the world. kind of feels like, you know, that's kind of been forgotten a bit now, and everyone is talking about, artificial intelligence you know chat gpt google bard that's all over the news anything i ever hear about if i listen to modern technology podcasts that seems to be the only topic that anyone's talking about at the moment i even joe i mean you know you'll be the first one mate you're not a big you know computer guy are you? you know this kind of stuff normally is not something you jump on straight away but you've even been trying out chat gpt and seeing the use in it i guess you know you, you found it quite helpful so far <laughs> i don't know i found it quite frustrating as well so i got it to um grammar and spell check something for me um mm. the other week and i was really impressed with it so i've used it once i was like oh that's fantastic you know spell check and all this kind of stuff great great stuff grammar check and then i went to use it again yesterday uh, for another work thing to spell and grammar check and it won't work <laughs> <laughs> I, I also find sometimes when it's wrong it's like confidently wrong yeah. <laughs> I like that confidently wrong. Yeah. I'm really wrong. Well, that's the thing, I guess, you know, if you use a traditional search engine, you know, you type something into Google, you get a list of sources you can pick from. Mm. When you ask ChatGPT, it basically tells you one thing. 
and you've got to kind of but trust it's, it. All, it's, you know? it's also it's offline, so it's uh, it's based yeah. on sources um, rather than like you know searching uh, a database of information that's out there. Well, created information, yeah. but yeah, for, for now, for now, yeah. <laughs> well, well, Although there have been some crazy stories. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this. Um, you know, kind of going a bit off topic, but we'll, we'll bring it back to retro in a minute. But these kind of um, GPT hustles they've been doing, where you know the versions they've got of it online, they've actually been getting people. People have been asking it like. Um, I'll give you a hundred pounds, make it into a thousand pounds in two weeks. I've, I've, I've seen about the unrestricted you. versions that are, yeah. that are pretty scary as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the interesting. Cre- uh, the-, the creepiest thing I heard about that unrestricted version that they've got online is apparently, so it went online, it registered a website for a business and it was doing all that, but it got to the stage where, you know, you go on a website and you have to click the, I'm not a robot thing. You know, no, the it, capture it that worked comes that out. No, it couldn't get past it. So what it did is it went on Fiverr, and hide a human being to do that for it. <laughs> oh, that's scary. Which is just nuts. <laughs> so, that's this creepy. is, I mean, it's a, big, it's a big thing in tech right now, but I mean, when I'm using it, I mean, to me, it kind of reminds me a bit of old movies like War Games and stuff. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, yeah. last week I was looking for a way and I actually asked ChatGPT4, because I pay for the premium version, 20 quid a month to use it. I asked, I asked it, you know, can I access this via a terminal on a retro computer? And it lied to me. It said no, but it turns out there is now a way. Yes. Um, so enthusiast, I hope I say this right, uh, Yeo Keng Meng has uh, released a client for MS-DOS that can run on your uh, 4.77 megahertz IBM PC. So this, it, it, it runs on the IBM, but connected to a network. And it's quite interesting yeah. how he's done this because uh, the main problem that, seemed to happen was you know he, he's sending packet information from the ibm to uh, a virtual machine that's then kind of connecting to the internet and to chat gpt but the main problem seemed to be http uh, security so https which is a uh, the standard of, of security for websites and he had to create a proxy to basically strip out the security of the website so yeah. that he could, you know, send this information to it and receive a, a response using um, ChatGPT's API. So really, it's just sending, yeah, the raw text work and the yeah, it's, the it's, it's sending the text on the back from the yeah. MS DOS machine to a virtual machine, which then uses a proxy to ask ChatGPT, and then it gets sent back. Well, this same guy made a Slack client for Windows three point one a couple of years ago as well. So he's quite into doing this. But I mean, yeah, that's the thing about ChatGPT. I mean, I, I love the screenshot in this article on Ars Technica. It shows an old um, amber monochrome display on an IBM 5155. And, you know, you can see the scan lines in there as well. It's got the phosphor glow on there too. That to me is kind of like, you know, what you imagined the future would have been like in the 60s or 70s when you watch your movies. Yes. Just talking to a machine like that and it coming up on the screen. And it's war games to me, which I find extremely exciting. So I kind of look through this because I'd like to do this myself. And, you know, ChatGPT is like, it can, it can do coding for you. You can ask it to write you a program. Um, so maybe eventually this could be something you can just ask it to do. I actually asked it to write a podcast client for the Amiga that could play the Retro Hour recently. And it gave me some code. I haven't tried it out on the Amiga yet, but it will be interesting to see if it works. Tommy, where do you think we'll see ChatGPT in the future, uh, retro-wise? I think uh, people are going to be able to use it to uh, 
to create better, better access to old games in uh, in modern environments. As you said, to I think it will be helpful to write new code for new and better emulators, perhaps for those that we really can't do that well. Do, at do you the think moment. it might have some application in like looking at code and then finding cheats that probably people haven't and found? And I think it might have an help with an upswing in uh, coding. I mm. think it can help, not especially retro now, but it, I think it will be able to help people who are curious about coding. But since we don't really have those coding uh, in schools anymore, at least not in Sweden, uh, even though we have it in our curriculum. So this, I think this will also be a help for people to start uh, coding again. Well, that, that's a good point because I mean, I, I did actually ask it over the weekend. I, I said to ChatGPT4, "Write me a Pong game for the Commodore Plus Four," and it wrote it all in Basic for me. I copied that into an emulator and it played. So I mean, the fact that it, it's even got that knowledge of retro computing kind of built into it already, yeah. you know, the old operating systems and languages, I think, is very interesting. I must admit, I'm looking at this now on on this emulator here that's running on MS DOS. I probably wouldn't ask it to play Global Thermonuclear War like in war games. I'd be slightly nervous about typing that in. Um, but I do think it's very cool that it has been ported to uh, retro systems. Because, you know, in terms of demands, if all the work's been done on the back end, it's just text, isn't it? So you would imagine it would be quite simple to display on these old retro computers and give you quite a futuristic feeling. So, um, yeah, exciting and uh, admittedly Slightly scary times. So, um, yeah, very cool demo. Now, um, obviously, when we get a patron on the podcast, we always like to invite you to uh, bring a story along. And uh, this is something I must admit that's probably been around a couple of years, but I think this one passed us all by, didn't it? Yeah, it must have. I uh, I personally haven't heard about it. And uh, I think it fits me very well with being an old Nintendo player and a recent adopter of microcomputers. It's, uh, I will try to pronounce it here, La Colotte de Zelda by... What's that translate to in uh, in Spanish? Isn't it like the, the hero's pants or something? Yes, or uh, even Zelda's pants is probably, I don't know. I think it's by a, a person, Sisquire. I probably pronounced that wrong. But it's an Amstrad CPC uh, version of The Legend of Zelda, more or less. Mm. With, if I understand it right, some influences from A Link to the Past as well. And I haven't played it. It's apparently out. I haven't heard about it for about three years. I think it's been out. <laughs> but I looked at uh, some of the gameplay on uh, YouTube and I really, really liked the graphical style and the sound. Seems really cool. Have you got an Amstrad then, Tommy? Is, is that a machine you've no, got in your collection? No, I don't or? have a physical Amstrad. I really mm. like one because... The Amstrad was one of, when I started to look into microcomputers, the Amstrad CPC-464 was the first one I got really in love with because of uh, the keyboard, to be fair. Yeah. I love that color, that weird color choices for like the arrows and so I think it's The greens beautiful. and yes. stuff. <laughs> so I am always on the lookout for an, for the Amstrad. And when I finally get one, I will give this a chance. But I'm a bit disappointed in the film I watched on YouTube is that they don't show any dungeons, but I assume the dungeons are done as well because I would like to hear the music. The music is so great. It's really good music mm. in this. What what, uh, what do you uh, think, Joe? Because I, I'm looking at this and it it looks better than Zelda. I, I was going to say, I, I hate to say it, 
as a big Zelda fan. Now, when I say I'm a big Zelda fan, I'm a big Zelda fan of like a link to the past and onwards because of, you know, I didn't grow up with a Nintendo. I grew up with, you know, Sega and SNES and stuff like that. So I've got a lot more affiliation for, you know, 16-bit onwards. Um, however, I must admit, and you've just said it there, Avi, I think it does. It looks better than the Nintendo ones. It, it looks better than the original. It looks like a nice version of The Legend of Zelda. Well, well one thing me. I've noticed, um, it hasn't got the, the screen push. Yeah. No. It's well, uh, it so it scrolling. And also notice that some of the octoroks, those octopi, octopuses, they seem to move a, a bit weird uh, in comparison to the old NES game, but that might be mm. a, a show by choice. But there was something I, I noticed. They seem to squiddle along a bit faster. In terms of the animation, though, I think it, it does look very smooth. Really um, smooth. I'm not sure kind of what, what, the, what the frames per second is on this, but it does look yeah, very fluid. Um, and I think for a fan-made project, I mean, you know, it's I've got an Amstrad machine, um, but I, my keyboard doesn't work on it at the moment. It's something I need to kind of on my ever-growing list they're, they're, they're so underrated, aren't they, the Amstrad? Like, <laughs> That's the thing, yeah. Having these new titles coming out and like really showing the kind of power of, of what they can do. Um, Might that be the reason that this apparently still around for three years without Nintendo throwing down a big... <laughs> Maybe. Maybe they don't know what an Amstrad is at Nintendo. I think that's probably right, Ravi, if I'm honest. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, apparently a new version of it just came out a couple of months ago, so it does look like it's something that's kind of in constant development as well. Um, But, yeah, I think the more I see about the Amstrad, it's just stuff that I didn't realise was possible on that platform back in the day. It feels like, you know, developers back in the 80s just didn't really push these machines to the limits. So it's very cool that fans are doing that. So, um, yeah, if you do want to play Zelda on your Amstrad that is available now, now, of course, we do our monthly patrons hangout. I did mention that before at the end of every month. So that means we're only about two weeks away from the next one. And uh, I mean, Tommy, you're on most of our hangouts yes. we do each month. And uh, how much fun are the hangouts? It's, it's always a highlight of my month. On, it's on the, the last it is the highlight of the month. It's, I think it's the part, the part of the month when I really meet my friends. And I always look forward to the next one because to see... What are now a bunch of familiar faces, people I have a relation to that I know about, I know preferences, I know I know a lot about you guys in a not non-creepy way. And uh, <laughs> it's ah, it's such fun. It's such fun. Yeah, we've got a great community there. And I think, you know, like I said at the start of the show, the fact that we have people from all around the world coming on there with different experiences and different systems to show off and we get advice and sometimes it's just, you know, we have a laugh, don't we? And we nerd out about stuff. It's really laid back. And um, we always look forward to doing these. And there's another one coming up at the end of the month. All our patrons are welcome. So if you join any tier of patron, um, you'll get invited to the monthly hangouts as well. And we would love to see you there. And also for our gold members and above, we have a, a little bonus podcast that we do, don't we, Ravi? Uh, the, the After Hours podcast. Oh, yes. Absolutely love that. It's good because we kind of just go off on a subject and, and, and we debate stuff and we can be a bit longer than uh, we are on the podcast, even though we are over an hour. Yes. Um, with the after hours, we can sometimes go into two. You know, it's uh, uh, it's really good. And uh, I always love kind of just discussing different topics. And one that I really liked was when patrons suggested games for us to play. I think. Yeah, we need to do that again. That would be a great one because. It was all titles that I'd never touched before and you guys hadn't. And it's great to kind of experience new ones and other people's memories. 
Yes, I mean, we swap it up every month on the, the bonus podcast that we do for our gold members and above. Uh, the After Hours, the current episode is all about piracy, actually. So, uh, like we said last week, if you remember a fast or anything like that, don't listen to that episode. Um, but that is available now. And if you join us as a gold member above on Patreon, you'll unlock all 33 episodes of that. So, a lot of listening. And, of course, the reason that you're helping out the podcast on Patreon is just to make sure we can pay all our hosting costs and the bills that come in all the time. So, anything we get in there is massively appreciated. And, of course, for joining us on Patreon, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame Hall of Fame and let's induct the latest members into the Hall of Fame actually at last week's guest on the podcast thank you so much to uh, Ross Kilgariff who joined us on there this week Robbie Bowie and Seabreezer who all joined us on Patreon over the last seven days thank you so much for your support and if you'd like to join us on there all the details to sign up right now and get an invite to this month's Patrons Hangout or on our website at theretrohour.com Right then, we're going to be talking to this week's special guest, Dave Plummer, from Dave's Garage on YouTube, and of course, ex-Microsoft as well. Some great memories of his time at Microsoft to go into um, those amazing days in the 90s. We'll talk to him in just a moment. Before we do that, let's take a second to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, and it's a long-term sponsor of the Retro Hour, our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, before we're talking about, you know, all these uh, new technologies that are coming out there as well, and you know the online world at the moment, it feels a pretty crazy place. So we know that services like ExpressVPN protect your privacy and your security online as well, which is obviously a really big part of using a service like ExpressVPN. But one thing that's very cool that some people don't know about is you can also use ExpressVPN to watch movies and TV shows that normally you can only see in other countries. And this might be of interest if, like me, you've kind of watched everything you want to watch on, like, you know, the British Netflix or wherever you are. Because, you know, you're paying increasingly expensive costs every month for these services. This will change your world. So now, rather, you use ExpressVPN to basically binge movies and TV shows, particularly on the American Netflix. Yeah, I've absolutely rinsed Netflix. And, you know, you pay for it and you want to unlock this extra content. It's there. And uh, I've been watching some awesome stuff. One of Joe's favourite films as well, Cliffhanger. Which I is, love uh, Cliffhanger. <laughs> absolute <laughs> classic one. And then uh, one, one you guys might not have heard of, um, I Got the Hookup, um, which is like, it's like Friday kind of one of those tales about uh, two hustlers and they end up getting uh, a load of dodgy mobile phones and selling them from the back of a van and then it all goes wrong <laughs> and uh, uh, that's got master p in it as well it's a wicked like old school hip-hop movie really good uh accepted as well which is uh college rejects uh, it's got jonah hill in it and they basically um you know make their own college and pretend they're there to their parents, <laughs> which is a really good film. I, I loved all of them. And uh, yeah, it's just great to kind of have them on a service that you're already paying for. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, believe it or not, there are actually around a hundred different Netflix libraries around the world. So that is a hell of a lot as well. I mean, you know, there might be, if you love, you know, Korean dramas, you can use Express. I, I went to- onto the Australian one the other day and it had um, obviously Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> But then it had had great stuff like Muriel's Wedding as well. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not seeing that for years. So, and that's the thing. I mean, it works not just Netflix. I mean, you can use it with, you know, services like Hulu, BBC iPlayer, if you're outside the UK. Even YouTube has videos that are region locked. I was actually watching some old, um, do you remember that BBC um, show that was on in the 90s, The Net? Yes. Um, it was yeah. kind of an early internet program. And there's, there's about 10 epi- episodes of it on YouTube. But for some reason, the last episode, episode 10, it wouldn't work well, in the UK. Have you ever used YouTube 
TV as well. That's a service um, where you can get TV channels and you can sign up and that's only available in America. But with a VPN, you can watch it and you can watch all the football on there and stuff. So that's the thing you know you press your button it thinks you're in America then it, it unlocks this content that wouldn't work over here um, and the reason I mean we there's a lot of VPNs out there we love ExpressVPN particularly for watching media because it's just really quick isn't it no lag yeah yeah I don't even notice when it's on you know I have it set yeah. to open up when I open up my laptop and that's usually because I'm traveling as well so you know uh, with security it's absolutely fantastic if you've got like hotel Wi-Fi and uh, places that you usually wouldn't connect to yeah, and it works on all your devices, you know, your phone, your smart TVs, your consoles. I think there's apps for Xbox and PlayStation. So um, you can watch what you want on the big screen or on the go. If you're heading away over summer, it's definitely worth having on your laptop. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows and, of course, stay secure, use our exclusive link right now and you will get an extra three months free of ExpressVPN on a one-year plan. And, of course, for using our link, you're going to really help out the podcast as well. Take advantage of these offers. Let our sponsors know that you're listening and you enjoy what they do. So head to expressvpn.com slash retro. Get those extra three months for free and support the show. expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support of our show. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for coming on and uh, being our guest news host this week. Been a blast to have you on. Did you have fun? I had really fun. So I've... Thank you. But quite a good experience. I really liked it. Well, thanks again for uh, taking the time to chat to us. And of course, we'll see you on the Hangout in a couple of weeks' time as well. Yes. And uh, next, this week's guest uh, going inside the world of Microsoft and, of course, his fabulous YouTube channel as well. Dave Plummer is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. This is the Retro Hour podcast with me, Dan Wood, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest, and I'm so excited to talk to our guest this week, someone who I've watched on YouTube for a good few years now, massive fan of his YouTube channel, Dave's Garage or Dave's Garage, depending on which side of the pond you're from. And he's got an incredible career in the industry as well, particularly, I'm very excited to hear about his time at Microsoft as well, where he worked on technologies that millions of people still use every day, stuff like the Windows Task Manager, Zip Folders, and a game that I spent way too much time on as a teenager, um, 3D Space Cadet Pinball. So we'll hear all about that with our special guest this week, Dave Plummer. How are you doing, Dave? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, do some reminiscing with us um, over the next hour or so. Now, one question that we always like to ask our guests, just to get a bit of background on kind of where it all started for you. I mean, do you remember your earliest computer experience, what initially got you into computers? I do. I wandered into a Radio Shack store when I was about... 10 or so, 10 or 12, and they had the boxes of a TRS-80 Model 1, Level 1, had just arrived from Tandy or whoever shipped it to them, and uh, they hadn't set it up yet. And I, I saw it said computer. I was like, oh, can I play with it? Can I set it up? And they were like, they didn't think I had a shot, but they're like, yeah, go ahead, kid. And it's really no harder than hooking up a stereo, except they're all the same connector on a TRS-80, so power is the same as monitor, and you got to make sure not to screw them up. But beyond that, it was pretty simple. So I was playing with it for the rest of the day because I was just fascinated with it. And I eventually wound up riding my bike down there. We had Thursday night late shopping in my small city I grew up in. So I'd ride my bike down there and pack away for three or four hours and uh, spent a lot of time there. And then eventually I rode my bike down to the University of Regina Computer Lab where they had a PDP-11 and I had an account that I could get in and code in basic and so on and so forth. So those are my two really initial experiences with computers. And uh, I remember thinking that 
what we have now with chat GPT-4 is kind of what I was expecting from the computer because, you know, I'd seen Star Trek <laughs> and whatnot. So I would type in my programs effectively in English and it would say SN error, which I thought was spelling error, which is, of course, syntax error. But uh, so pretty naive experience just going in totally blind. But yeah, it must have seemed magical, though, you know, just using a computer, you know, back in those days. Yeah, I've kind of looked back at it and I get a massive dopamine rush from making a computer do anything, especially if it's something complicated or hard that I made it do. And I really enjoy that process and I did from the first day. Well, let's talk about your first home system then. What was your first computer you got and how did you get it? Uh, my parents, when I was about 15, saved up and they managed to get a Commodore 64 and a 1541 drive. And I had a little 13-inch Zenith TV in my bedroom, so I used that as the monitor. And uh, that was really the first computer we ever owned. And in fact, it's the last thing anybody ever bought for me because I used that to write code that I bought an Amiga with and it just kind of cascaded forward. So, Yeah, you were lucky to have the uh, 1541 floppy drive. I had a uh, my first machine, a Commodore Plus 4 that I still got next to me. Um, it was all cassette based over here, though. Yeah, floppy disk drives were way too expensive in the UK. So, uh, yeah, the amount of time I spent ages waiting for games to load from cassette tape. So uh, having a floppy drive was definitely something nice to have back then, I imagine. Yeah, although they were so unreliable because the early ones overheated so badly that uh, it spent yeah. many, many months of its first year in the shop. So I spent a lot of time with the uh, cassette deck as well. So how did you learn to program the Commodore 64? Because I know the Commodore 64 is basic. It wasn't the most fully featured. I remember a lot of, you know, peeking and poking was the order of the day on the Commodore 64. Uh, how did you start programming that machine then? And was it basic all the way or did you get into assembly and machine code as well? Almost simultaneous. So I, I think I had the programmer's reference guide, the, the classic uh, spiral bound one. And uh, so it had a pretty good set of documents for basic itself. And I was able to use that to learn basic. And the back of the book was all this assembly language. And I didn't have an assembler, but I had a machine language monitor on cassette. So I would load that up and uh, tinker in machine language or assembly language, well, text. So it depends what you're looking at. But I was always blown away by you could do things like increment the screen color in a loop and it would only make it about 20 pixels before the color changed, you know, as opposed to basic flashing the entire screen at a slow frame rate. And or if you animated a sprite, it was infinitely fast, effectively. And so I was always blown away by how much faster assembly and machine language was. So I kind of gravitated to it from the beginning. What kind of things were you writing at first on the Commodore 64 then? Were you, were you doing applications or games? What, what kind of stuff were you making? I was doing games. The very first thing I wrote was basically a Galaga clone, except it only had the mothership because I couldn't do all the sprites. There aren't that many sprites when you're just not multiplexing them. And... Uh, I remember it was horrible code, the ultimate in spaghetti code, because not having an assembler, I wrote it in the monitor, but you could not insert code. So if you wanted to insert code, you had to jump out to some spare space and then write your code there and then jump back to where you had been. So it was completely <laughs> horrible and unmaintainable. Uh, but it was my first experience with it. And uh, when I finally finished it, I went to format a new floppy in order to copy all my code over to it. And I got it backwards and I wound up formatting my original. So it's lost to the oh, ages ouch. now, but... I still, I'm still bitter about it too, as you can tell. <laughs> well, you mentioned about getting an Amiga as well. And, you know, I'm a massive fan of the Amiga. You know, behind me in this room, I've got an Amiga 4000 set up, you know, that is oh, awesome. probably my favorite of all my retro machines. So tell us about getting your Amiga then and why did you want that machine? Well, basically what was going on was I had dropped out of high school and I wasn't doing much and I was working at a paint store or something like that. And uh, a guy that I'd gone to high school with called me from Ottawa and said, hey, do you still know how to program? I was like, yeah, it's been a year or two, but I think I do. 
And he said, well, we're looking for game programmers. And they, they were contracting with Gremlin and uh, Accolade and a couple other companies like that. So it was a small design house in Ottawa. And he said, well, here, here's what we're doing. We're doing a cycling game and it's got to have 3D parallax scrolling and it's got to have the sprites multiplexed. Write a really quick demo, send that to us. And everything was done by VHS through FedEx at that point because you couldn't send anything online yet, of course. Uh, hmm. So I wrote the uh, code to do that demo. And I had watched a friend named Chris uh, the summer before we had worked on a game called Commander Video. He did all the code and I did all the graphics, but I spent a lot of time watching over his shoulder and kind of learning assembly language more and seeing how he did the raster interrupts and that kind of thing. So I learned a great deal from him and used most of that to write that demo. So they wound up hiring me and I got in my car and I drove whatever it was five days east to get to Ottawa. And uh, they uh, set me up with just the Commodore 64 and then a fifth uh, SFD 1001, the IEEE drive, which was quite a bit faster mm. than the 1541. But after a while, one of Chris's friends, I think Kevin Pakel had written something called TSDS, which basically allowed you to do all your assembly and editing on the Amiga. And then there was a cable ran to the 64 and it acted as a virtual floppy drive for the 64. So you could write and do everything on the Amiga and then just type load and run on the 64. And it was an order of magnitude faster at assembling code. So I uh, decided to get an Amiga at that point just so I could do that. Then we had to own our own. It's not like it was a company piece of hardware, so it was my own Amiga and everything. But uh, that's where I first got the Amiga. Was that the 500 or the 1000? Which, which model? It was the get? 500. It was just when the 500 yeah. first came out. Yeah, really nice machine. And uh, obviously, I mean, you released software for the Amiga as well. And it had a great operating system. I mean, what do you think made the Amiga so special then? Because it must have felt like a big generational jump from the, the Commodore 64. It really did, especially going from assembly language to C. C was pretty mysterious, especially on the Amiga, where it's really verbose. You know, struct intuition-based pointer equals struct intuition-based load library. It's just a massive line of code to load a library. And uh, you look at that and as the first intro, hello world, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is way different than what I'm used to. So I got a book called uh, Born to Code in C, I think. I forget who wrote it, but he's still out there somewhere. And uh, started with that and then learned C enough to be able to make my way around on the Amiga. But my day job was still writing 6502 for the 64. So it was, you know, basically tinkering. And eventually I think I got a copy of the Lattice compiler uh, saved up and I got the big three volume set. I still got it here somewhere, actually. And uh, from there, I never really looked back once I had a good compiler. So, Well, your uh, big Amiga product was um, Hypercache, and that was, I've seen it described as the first commercial disk caching software. So how did you come up with that idea? And explain a bit how Hypercache worked. Uh, it I would imagine there were solutions on the PC before that. It probably was the first Amiga accelerator or disk cache, I would think, because the factory operating system didn't have it, except you could type add buffers, I think, in your boot config and add some read caching for the floppy drives, but there was no support for hard drives. And uh, I looked around and I found a piece of code that was doing something with the device driver, but I saw that it got far enough that it actually loaded, found the device driver and was looking at the jump table at the beginning. And you can know that's where you can find read and seek and write and all the very basic IO commands. So I decided, well, what if I intercepted read? And uh, from that, I started building a cache and it grew into an NWA associative read write back cache with I kind of did it as more of an experiment to see what I could do is so much more than a commercial product. But then when I was done with it, I realized it makes a huge difference in the performance of the Amiga. Um, so I wound up, I was going to sell it as shareware, but then I decided, no, I'm going to make the manuals and I'm going to shrink wrap it and do the whole deal. And I sold it through Safe Harbor and some of the other bigger catalogs in the back of Amiga magazines where they have a software listings, those people. And uh, 
it did fairly well for an Amiga product. And I, that's what put me through college, really. And was that the first commercial product that you released? It was actually, yeah. Yeah, it must have been great seeing the actual finished product, you know, in on discs and in a box and with manuals. You must have got quite a buzz out of seeing that. Yeah, I think the biggest thing was going into my the one computer store in my hometown and seeing it on the shelf and knowing that I wrote it. Yeah. That had a cool feeling to it. So, What about working with the Amiga, though, in terms of, because the operating system was very advanced for the time, you know. I think it was the first home computer that had proper multitasking. How did you find working with its operating system? I enjoyed it a lot. I was kind of a... I had a fair bit of experience on Unix, and not that the Amiga is similarly, similar to Unix, but at least it's a preemptive multitasking. Uh, there's no memory protection in the earlier models, which is kind of a drawback, but uh, compared to, I don't know if the real time, but the simpler operating systems like MS-DOS and CPM, it was just light years ahead of that. So um, I really enjoyed working on it, although until I got the RKMs, which I forget what that stands for, maybe that's German or something, but uh, the manuals for the actual operating system code it's pretty opaque, but once you get that, then it's it's fun to work with. Yeah, you're right about lack of memory protection as well. I remember that guru meditation error was a, a very familiar site in the early days of the Amiga. Yeah, we just uh, been working on a project called Night Driver for the last year or two, and his fatal error exception is a ASCII art version of the guru meditation error. So, Oh, nice. <laughs> well, let's talk about your um, time at Microsoft then. So, I mean, you started working for them in the early 1990s. How did your journey lead you to Microsoft, and why did you want to work there? Well, after I'd worked in the game industry for a little while, I realized I probably needed a degree at some point. So I decided to go back and I finished high school when I was 21 and then I went on to university. And in my last year of university, I was looking for an internship or in my second last year, I was on an internship and I was in the, the food court with the old and the board and I was just reading a book I'd grabbed at Cole's bookstore and it was a hard drive, Microsoft and the making of Bill Gates or vice versa. And I read the book and I was just fascinated by uh, the people and the projects and the way they did things. And I just felt such a kinship with that whole process. It was like, I need to be there. But I was in Saskatchewan, I had no idea how. So what I did is I went back and Hypercash had these blue registration cards and you had to fill out your name. And then what, so you, back in the day, this is how you registered your software for updates and so on. And so I went through the stack because I'd actually asked for email, which was kind of innovative at the time. And so not many had email, so it was pretty easy to check. But um, I looked for anybody with a Microsoft.com email address and then cold emailed them saying, hi, I'm a student in Saskatchewan looking for a job, basically. And uh, one fellow named Alistair Banks wrote back to me. And he connected me with a couple internal people there, hiring managers. And so I wrote directly to them and they brought, did a phone screen and then they brought me out for a series of interviews and I got a summer internship out of that. And so that's when I went to MS-DOS. Would you remember much about that interview process, what it, what it was like? I do. It was really grueling. They don't do this anymore. It's a much kinder, gentler world, I guess. But uh, it was basically five one-hour interviews with a lunch interview in between and well, if you made all five, because the fifth was the as appropriate, basically, if you were doing well in the first three or four, then they would put you on to the hiring, hiring manager who made the business decision to hire you or not. And each one was programming tasks, like find the number of bits set in a byte or reverse this linked list, those kinds of programming problems. And some were brain teasers, you know, the ones you hadn't heard because the internet wasn't really a thing yet with the one kid's got a blue hat and there's two red hats and they're in order. How do you figure out what hat is on what kid? Those kind of problems or the fox and the chicken and the bag of feet across the river, yeah. I think. <laughs> Those kind of problems. And it wasn't so much whether you could solve them, but it was your process of thinking it through, how you worked with them, 
how well you were able to think out loud and on a whiteboard articulate what it was you were doing. So it sounds a pretty, pretty intense day that must have been. It was. And, uh, you know, I didn't know at the time that I had autism, but people with autism kind of struggle in that structure. I think it's a lot. It's a lot of social interaction. It's a lot of being present and putting on your mask. And by the time five hours are up, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Ready for a sleep after that, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. They're ready for something. Well, when you did get the job at Microsoft then, what were you initially working on there? I started on MS-DOS 6.2 and they put me on, I think initially Smart Drive, which is because I had written this cache, which is kind of how I'd gotten the job at Microsoft. They stuck me on the cache for Smart Drive and I added the ability to cache CD-ROMs because the MSCDX drivers were just coming out and they were also totally uncached. So I did all the caching for uh, devices, I think. It's a long time ago. I think that's when we added right back caching to the hard drive caching as well. And then I did a bunch of work to move as much as I could of the code and data up into the high memory area on the PC, which is that first bank of memory that's addressable by 16 bits by wrapping the pointer around. Um, so you can still use it on a 640K machine, but it moves everything out of the 640K base if it's there. So I did the conversion for double space as well. And then I think I wrote single pass disk copy so that you could do a disk copy without swapping disk eight times or whatever it was. Then I did the setup program uh, wherein if you had a previous version of MS-DOS, you could use a single floppy and I used deltas on the binaries to just patch and upgrade. So you could go from six to six two with a single disk, which saved them a fair bit of money, I imagine. Yeah, I bet. Um, and I mean, that time at Microsoft as well, that must have been quite an exciting time in the, you know, early as we get into the mid 1990s, because that was, you know, the lead up to the release of Windows 95, which um, do you have much memories of that time then? Because I know, I imagine there was a lot riding on the release of Windows 95. It was such a big product for Microsoft. I do, but my timeline was I was in MS-DOS until MS-DOS was done. And then I moved to Windows NT to work on Common OLA. Common OLA delivered into Windows 95 because it shipped for Office and everything else, uh, which means my code is in Win 95, but I was actually on the NT team when it shipped. And I, we weren't competitors, but there's always a certain amount of rivalry in between teams and groups. So I was a thorough NT guy, and we didn't get invites to Win 95 launch. I mean, I went over there to see, check it out and see what was going on anyway, but we didn't get the colored T-shirts and the official invite anyway. So you did actually go to the launch yourself, folks. I mean, I, you know, I've seen... YouTube videos of the Windows 95 launch, and it looked like, you know, I'd, I'd never seen a software launch like that before. It looked like a rock concert. I mean, what memories have you got of that then? It must have seemed very glamorous for a software launch back then. It did. I think my most vivid memory is the fact they painted all the grass green for acres and acres um, because there's a huge open common area at Microsoft there, and they wanted it to look good, so they, they literally paint the grass green so it looks like turf. And then the huge white tents were erected and Jay Leno was wandering around. And I don't remember the actual launch. So I don't know that I stuck around that long. I was there more for the pre-events and then headed back. But uh, so, yeah, I do remember the day pretty well, though. Well, let's talk about something that, you know, is still used by millions of Windows users all around the world that you were behind. That is, of course, the Windows Task Manager. So tell us a bit about what inspired its creation and tell us a bit about the development of that. I think I was used to some of the process reporting stuff on the Amiga and on NT, your end task dialog was basically a list of windows and it was really, really basic. So just, I'd always worked on stuff on the side. I had done all the hypercache stuff and uh, I had continued writing shareware on the side when I was at Microsoft. And so I, I started tinkering with task manager and the problem I ran into initially was that the way for getting reporting on processes and all that was done through the registry. 
H key performance data or something like that. And it was really slow and incomplete. So I thought, well, I'll take it in and I'll just continue writing it as an internal product because then I can use all the APIs that I need to use, which I can't do in a shareware product because I don't know them technically, right? Uh, you're stuck with the public linker files at least. So I continued developing it and a couple of people saw it and were curious about it. And I let them take it and try it and it kind of spread around the team. And I forget how it became a decision, but at some point it was just in the product. So You must have been very pleased that that was baked into the, the main operating system release thing. So obviously it's such a valuable part of Windows. Uh, yeah, more so now, because when I was talking, to, I got the code for Task Manager XP to do an episode on the channel. And when I was talking to Microsoft about getting the code and so forth, I was talking about metrics with them. And apparently there's well over a billion installed users and there's something like 2 billion invocations every month. So it's yeah. pretty well used. Well, something else that was very well used back in the day, um, I wonder how much productivity time in, uh, in offices was lost due to this back in the day, that brilliant game, Space Cadet Pinball or 3D Pinball for Windows, as it was known as well. Um, you know, that was a game that was a favorite for an entire generation. You know, all my friends at school and college were playing that for years. So tell us a story about that's creation then. I mean... Was it exciting to be able to work on a game, you know, while you were at Microsoft? It was. Uh, that came about because the vice president at the time, Jim Alchin, he wanted people to see NT as cool and capable and potentially, a, you know, that it could run games if it came down to it and that kind of thing, whereas it had a very staid server, in, Im, server image. And so he wanted something cool, and I don't know whose idea it was, but they said, well, let's take the Win95 pinball game, which already existed from Maxis as a company, it came with three tables, I think. And we got that code. And the, my problem was, of course, I'm on NT now. So not only am I fully 32-bit, I also have MIPS, Alpha, PowerPC, and Forerunner of IA64. And I've got to make it work on all of these platforms. And the thing is not written to work on any of these platforms. It's very much a, on almost an MS-DOS-style gaming coding approach, but uh, very 16-bit, very packed, and just stuff generally that will not work on a 64-bit or 32-bit risk platform. So it was kind of a rewrite. And what I did was run the original game as kind of an engine inside of a box. And then I interfaced with it because some of the code was so hard to deduce what it was doing. There were state machines built with huge switch tables that you would have to map out to find out what was going on. And that's actually how we left the Easter egg in for the uh, very first release. It was either we didn't know it was there or... We couldn't figure out how to remove it easily without breaking it. So that's Remind how you what could, that was. What, what was Easter egg again on the um, Easter egg? Maybe the wrong term, but if you type in a certain combination of letters, then you are able to drag and click the ball and just bang it into what you want. You get an infinite number of balls. You can advance the score. It's basically the test mode built into the game was left in. Yeah, and obviously, I mean that that was a part of you know the Windows Plus pack. I remember that came out, and then you yeah. know Windows XP had a version of it as well. I mean, was your your NT? the version of it, the basis for the Windows XP release? Yes. So yeah, the code that everybody knows is the one that I ported, uh, unless you happen to have the plus pack, I guess. I was in the plus pack as well with zip folders. That was another yeah. piece of code that I wrote, which was called Visual Zip at the time. But Very useful as well. You couldn't imagine not having that built into an operating system today, could you? No. And it was interesting because I was at a, I had released it as shareware and I was selling you know 10 or 15 copies a day, something like that, through the mail. And I got a call and I had permission, of course, to do this for Microsoft or to work on side projects. And I got a call from uh, the Microsoft person over in legal or not legal, I guess it was in product development. And they said, are you the author of zip folders? I'm like, yes. And I said, okay, well, we want to talk about an acquisition. Long story short, 
of the software. And I said, oh, well, what building are you in? And she said, why? I said, well, I'll stop by. And she says, no, 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 no. you got to talk to legal and you got to talk to travel and we got to figure out the logistics. And I'm like, why would I do that when I'm in building eight? And she's, they had no idea that I worked at Microsoft. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Even all that, you know, working for a big corporation, I imagine there's a lot of that red tape that is required for any project to get greenlit. Uh, I imagine they probably had the go ahead to get a zip. I mean, this, the version I, that I understood was that they were going to get a zip program from somebody, no matter what. And I recently had two options, which was I could give them mine at a, at whatever price they stated, or they could buy it at another one. And then I would be in competition with Microsoft and can't do that. So then I would have to quit or stop the software. So you don't get not a lot of negotiating room there. Yeah. It's funny because I set up a Windows 95 machine recently. And yeah, that was one thing I completely forgotten that wasn't in the operating system. I was like, how do I, oh, I need to download WinZip. You know, completely right. forgotten about that before it was built in. So yeah, different time. I'm one of the few people I think that has registered copies of WinZip and WinRAR because when I was developing mine, of course, I needed to own their software in order to make sure it was compatible and whatnot. And uh, so I've still got my old WinRAR registration from the very early 90s. You're that one guy that registered it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, if we're talking about Microsoft back then, I mean, Bill Gates, did, did you get to work with Bill then and any memories of Bill that stand out for you? No, not directly. Um, I was a couple of levels down from Bill. I think it was a very shallow organization at that time. I think I was four or five people removed in the in the tree, whereas now you would be probably 30 people removed from Satya, I would imagine, but much bigger company too. Uh, but I didn't have occasion to work with him much. I mean, I saw him in the halls and the occasional time. And I remember coming up to a crosswalk and there was a pedestrian in the crosswalk and I kind of stopped short and I looked up and oh, it's Bill. But uh, fortunately, that wasn't career limiting. Well, around that time, I mean, you know, we're talking about the run up to Windows XP now. And, you know, Windows 2000 was released. It's still my favorite version of Windows of all time, Windows 2000. And then when XP was launched, the basically the home and the NT kernels were merged, weren't they? And it became a product that was based on NT then. Um, and one of your claims to fame, and I've, I've seen your great YouTube video about this, but maybe you can just kind of summarize it for people that haven't watched that video yet, is you managed to sneak Microsoft Bob into Windows XP. So what happened there? Well, as much as I'd like to say, I can neither confirm nor deny the presence of Microsoft Bob in Windows XP. Um, the reality is I was doing product activation for XP. It was one of the last things I worked on. And there was the problem of how do we ship a set of keys that are tied to the BIOS of the machine in a way that people can't easily duplicate and just post a Usenet at the time because alt binaries was kind of the, or alt wares, those things were the main distribution uh, mechanism. And so I decided, well, we've got slack space on the CD. I'm going to make a large file, which in that day was 10 megabytes, and I'm going to digitally encrypt it and use it as a massive key that you have to have along with the CD key in order to activate the product. So if you're gonna download a crack, it's gonna have at least 10 megabytes of completely random data that doesn't compress. And uh, I looked around for things I could use. And I thought, well, I could just call CryptGen Rand and generate a whole bunch of data, but that's no fun. So I went up on the product servers and I grabbed the disk images from Microsoft Bob. Then I encrypted them with the WinZip encryption and then ultimately with PGP and one other mechanism and uh, with keys that I honestly can't remember today. So. Uh, there's no chance of it coming back until they break that <laughs> encryption, I imagine. Uh, but so this ballast of a large file that was tied to your CD key is actually the image of Microsoft Bob. That's hilarious. So that must have meant, you know, Microsoft Bob then must have been a lot more widespread than anyone realized back then. Yeah, by far, it probably shipped a thousand <laughs> to one in terms of <laughs> distribution. 
So why did you leave Microsoft in 2003 then? What happened there? So I had always been doing software on the side, as I noted. And uh, what happened was the software on the side started doing pretty well. I had been selling through the mail. And when the internet happened, I decided, well, I'm going to try running a banner ad and see how that works. And I went to a uh, aggregator of advertising where you can sign up with your credit card and you say, I want this many banner ads and you pay. And then I would have the checkout and everything all online as well. So it was the whole end to end process really for the first time. And I said, okay, I'll launch it for the weekend and see how it does. And I came back on Monday, I think morning and I checked it and I looked and I realized I had not set a cap on anything and it had sold um, or it had, run up a charge of ten to $15,000 in banner ads. And I was kind of, uh-oh, you know, I'm making $100 a day on this thing. It's take a while to pay that back. So I went to the sales report and found, oh, my goodness, it made like $30,000 in sales. And I realized that with the scale of the internet at that point, all you've got to do is just roll out a lot of advertising. And if you've got a good product, then it was a 30-day trial, money-back guarantee. You didn't have to activate right away. So there weren't a lot of returns because people knew what they were getting by the time they got it. And it was just a really good business to be in at the time. And it wound up paying a fair bit more than my day job. And it came down to the fact that I couldn't do both well anymore. Um, if I was giving enough time to the side business, then I was working shorter hours at Microsoft and vice versa. When Microsoft got busy due to product ship cycles and stuff, then my other thing suffered. And I had to make a decision, do one and do it well. I mean, you mentioned on, uh, you know, about the rise of the internet there. One thing that just came to mind is um, I remember obviously the the browser wars around that time. I mean, that was a big thing for Microsoft when Internet Explorer came along and, you know, kind of the demise of Netscape as well. I mean, have you got any kind of memories of, you know, inside Microsoft at that time, kind of what that was like and how important Internet Explorer and the internet suddenly became to the company? Uh, I was rather cynical about the internet. This before IE, this is in the very early days. I kind of thought it was CB radio, you know, a fad because that wasn't being used for anything useful yet. I was used to Gopher and Telnet and, you know, the various Unix type utilities for the internet, but the web I wasn't impressed with. But then of course it became pretty obvious that, uh, it was something amazing. And in terms of the browser itself, I, uh, I know the guy who owned the browser, but I never worked on the browser myself except for, you know, it uses common OLA and that kind of thing. But yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with the actual code base or anything of Internet Explorer, but it was, of course, a big deal to the company at the time. And I think we all had probably had Navigator on our machines at some point, and then we would switch to IE and dog fooded, as they called it back then. Yeah, IE definitely became the superior browser, you know, by the time we got to like release four, I think. And I, I thought Netscape became quite bloated around that time when they started bundling all the, the composer and everything in as well. So, uh, yeah, it was no surprise really that IE became the dominant platform, I think. But as you mentioned, I mean, the internet was just becoming such a big deal, wasn't it? That it was an easy way for people to get online if, if they were running Windows already. Right. Well, let's talk today about your, um, your YouTube channel, you know, the fantastic Dave's Garage. Um, so what inspired you to pick up a camera and start recording videos? Basically, what happened was I got diagnosed with autism and I did not want that to be a limiting factor, you know, that there's certain things you can't do or can't do well. And so I, I looked at the set of things that I was probably most challenged at and decided, well, I'm going to go do those things because, you know, the most discovery happens in uncharted waters, I guess. So I went out and I uh, had a big open house shop party here at my shop for 100 people. And I wrote a book and I started a YouTube channel and some other things like that that were just out of my comfort zone. And I'm not somebody who likes having their picture taken even. So Editing myself in 4K 60 all day long is, is a bit of a challenge, but I'm starting to get used to it. 
so that was really the start of the channel. And I, like most channels, I've left the old videos up just for painful, painful uh, contrast. Uh, it, it, it's hard to get started with anything. The first 1,000 subscribers are, of course, very, very slow. And um, it's quite an uphill battle, but I was learning a lot as I went. So, Do you remember which video kind of pushed your YouTube channel in front of more people? Did you have one video that really made the channel blow up? I think the round to get over the hump to a thousand subscribers was Theo Joe did a video on a Reddit post of mine. He basically read the Reddit post as an episode and it was about task manager and some of the trivia and history about that. And that drew a lot of people my way. And then I guess that got me enough traction that once people saw it, they started coming back. What's your process for making videos and do you, do you kind of plan them meticulously and script them or is it a bit more free flowing these days? How does it kind of work? No, I do script. Um, I sometimes go off script and then I have to go back and fix it for the closed captioning. But generally I script everything in advance and I write one page per two minutes. I tend to talk too fast in my episodes. I realize that, but my pace is about uh, two minutes per page. So if I write 10 pages, I've got 20 minutes of content and then I record it and then I spend the day editing it. So it's probably a day to write, day to record, day to edit. It's about a halftime job, a little bit, little bit more than a halftime job. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how long video editing takes, doesn't it? Particularly in the early days. I mean, when you pick it up and kind of learn your way around the software, it's it's a bit quicker. But yeah, it's still quite intensive, isn't it, the time that it takes? Yeah, and there's a lot of side work too. Like I'm doing an episode on uh, laser engraver and uh, I've got one here and I've been working on it for about two weeks trying to figure it out, get competent with it and so on. And so there's a lot of work goes off into the background that doesn't get shown or even seen in a short episode, so. Well, I love the fact that your channel is, you know, it's a real mixture of current technology and retro computing as well, which obviously you know, I'm a big fan of. And you've been showing off some incredible systems, including the uh, the Kim One that was made by MOS Technologies, you know, later Commodore owned them, uh, the Insight 8080, you know, the War Games computer. Right. So what are some of your favorite memories about, you know, exploring these machines and uh, how have you found covering them on YouTube? Well, the Kim One is probably my favorite, I think. Uh, what I found was I was on eBay and I was looking for a Kim One and I found one in a massive stack. And so it's a it's two Kim One chassis from MTU welded together with hand-wired interconnects between the buses. And it had the Kim One, a Reve Kim One with all ceramic chips, which was a nice deal. And it had two 16K memory boards, a hard drive controller, a video graphics terminal, serial, prom board. So it was a completely kitted out system. And I bought that and I started with what worked and what didn't work. And I got the Kim one work and it was pretty modified to be able to, people had to add terminals to them back then because it was set up for like a current loop TTY. If you wanted to do RS-232 to it, you had to actually cut some traces and change some chips or not chips and transistors. And so I undid all those changes to make it original again. And then went through and I fixed the two memory boards and I got almost everything working. And so I was filming my episode for the big Kim one reveal. And uh, what ultimately happened was I was doing it for the camera and not working where I could see. And I plugged the 12 volts into five and the five volts into 12. And that the, the Kim one was fine because it doesn't, ha it was not powered in that moment, but the uh, rest of the hardware took quite a shock. So I went through and I had to fix the memory boards, got those working. And I got really close on the video graphics terminal. I replaced a couple of ICs on it that I tested bad, but there was this transistor network where they take a square wave and they amplify that into 12 volts for their RAM row select. And it was basically constructed in 3D space on the back of the board off the legs of the transistor spoken through. And there were no traces left on the board. This board had been reworked so many times. 
And I tried. I tried so many times to rebuild that circuit and I would get one bank of RAM working or I would, they would both be active at once and I could not figure out for the life of me what was going on. And I eventually sent it off and it's just been fixed finally after a couple of months and it'll be coming back. So there will be a conclusion to that episode once I, but I want to make sure I have everything running and working properly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always been kind of one of my dream machines. I mean, they're quite hard to get this side of the pond. Um, and the IMSI 8080 as well. I mean, you know, War Games is probably my favorite movie of all time. So how do you find that machine then? What, what do you think about the IMSI? I think it's really cool. i would never had a lot of CPM experience, but it's a little more advanced in terms of the experience than, say, the Kim 1, because you can boot into some kind of useful operating system where with the Kim 1, you're, you've got a processor and you've got a bunch of RAM. That's about all you've got. There's also the uh, setup for the MSI 8080 clone is really amazing in that the guy has programmed so much stuff on the ESP32 that you can open up a shell on the desktop and browse to the drives and drag and drop software and do all kinds of things with it. It makes it really usable. He emulates the, not the cromulator, <laughs> some kind of old video terminal that sounds like that. Uh, yeah. He emulates that live so you can do graphics on it. And it's a really cool setup. I think those, you know, the, the late 70s machines, though, it kind of felt like everyone was just figuring out what to do and going their own way. So every machine's kind of unique, isn't it? So they're, they're quite interesting machines to explore, I think, that, that late 70s period, the, the first generation of micros, if you like. Yeah, I've got an Altair as well uh, that mm. I enjoy tinkering with because I've been able to get uh, basic running on it and that kind of thing. So it's historically, it's significant and nostalgic for me in that sense, even though I've never had an Altair or anything quite like that in the day. I was just going to say that the, one of the things that really appeals to me about the Kim one and the MSI and the machines of that era, the pet, those kinds of things is that one person could very deeply understand an entire system. Whereas right yeah. now you don't have a chance. You can't even understand your motherboard, let alone the operating system that runs on top of it. Not in any detail at all levels anyway. Yeah, you're right. There's so much happening in the background that the average person doesn't know is happening on modern systems. Right. I mean, I spent years working on Windows and it's growing so much that I still know how the lower levels work, but all the stuff on top now is kind of a mystery <laughs> to me. So, Well, it sounds like you've been, you know, buying quite a few retro systems and obviously showing them off on YouTube as well. How big is your computer collection these days? And have you got any favorite machines in your collection? Well, they're all favorites. That's why I keep them. But uh, yeah, I've got a TRS-80 Model 1 Level 1 that I bought from a dentist office that had been used a few times. It was still in the original boxes. Um, so I'm really happy to have that one because that's kind of the machine I started on. Then I've got three pets. I've got an amber pet, a green pet, a white pet with a chiclet keyboard, and it's in pretty minty condition. So that's, it's a nice one to look at, but you know, using it is quite horrible. And on the amber pet, I've built a cherry MX keyboard for it. So it's actually useful to type on. And, uh, what else have I got over there? I've got an IBM PC that I just put the Microsoft, uh, Mach 10 card in the accelerator. And I've got an IBM PS2 from when I worked at uh, IBM as an intern in college, assembling PS2s and stuff. What else is over there? Oh, Apple II. That's the bulk of it. Now I've got Tempest machines and stuff like that. But Are there any dream machines that you're looking for or you'd like to add to your collection? Yeah, I'd like a PDP-1170, but I don't see that happening. So I'm building a PDP-1123 right now. And I've just got it booting up to the initial prompt. I haven't got the drive connected yet because you have to go from the weird 50 pin down to the RLL MFM cable, which I don't have the breakout for yet. But it should, in theory, boot and run BSD-211 when I'm done. And that, I'm excited for that because it was a real formative machine for me, the PDP-11. And there's not many videos about it on YouTube as well. So I think the fact that you're documenting this stuff is really important. Yeah, a good channel is Usagi Electric. He's been going through the PDP-11 process kind of side by side with me, and he's sent me some parts. It's been really helpful, and uh, 
he, he'll go into it in probably more detail than I'll be able to do because he'll make several episodes on it, whereas I'll try to condense everything into one. But uh, so good channel to check out anyway. Well, I know you've done some videos on programming classic computers. I mean, would you ever or are there any plans to release software or maybe some games for, you know, retro systems like the Amiga or uh, even like, you know, old versions of Windows, anything like that? I've done a bunch of code, but not so much games. For the 64, we did Pet Rock, which is a spectrum analyzer where you plug an ESP32 into the back of the 64 and it does, has a microphone built in and it does the audio sampling. And the 64 displays the spectrum analyzer graph of the music. And we had wound up having to get the data into the piece or into the PC, into the 64 faster than was possible at 2400 baud or 1200 baud. And uh, we wound up rewriting all the serial routines and uh, a fellow over in the Netherlands named Rutger did a really nice job on using the CIA chips to drive the serial IO process in a sensible manner as opposed to kind of the polling way they did it originally. Hmm. Um, so we got really nice speeds out of that. So there was a lot of work went in there and it's all on GitHub and it's all open source. So, But in terms of games, I don't think I would probably write a game because the games on the 64 and that that I care about, I care about largely for nostalgia's sake. I don't think there was anything new that I could contribute that I would feel nostalgic about, of course. So I don't think it lines up well with what I love doing, but uh, I do like writing code for it still. A good pinball simulator on the 64 would be good. Yeah, well, there's always David's Midnight Magic. That's the one I go back yeah. to. Which I just realized a couple of years ago is kind of a clone of Black Knight 2000, which is the only uh, pinball machine I have. But uh, they're the same layout, I just noticed. Yes, I didn't play many pinball games on the 64. The Amiga I did, you know, Pinball Dreams and Pinball Fantasies. Great game called Slam Tilt on there as well. And, you know, it, it's really hard to get the physics right, I think, particularly in a lot of those early pinball games, but they really nailed it with that one. Yeah, the Windows Space Cadet Pinball, the physics aren't probably very realistic, but they are, it's kind of like a driving game where it doesn't have to be realistic as long as it's fun. And I think that that's probably true of it. So, And that was all, you know, code that was existing in terms of the gameplay logic. But uh, they did a nice job on that. Yeah, 100%. So um, are there any projects or videos coming up on the channel that you can tell us about? Anything you're working on right now? Yeah, right now I'm writing the, uh, it'll probably, probably air before this does, so it's if looking back at this point, but it is the top five fastest computer languages. And we started with, I started three, I did C Sharp, C and Python, C++ and Python, and then I drag raced them. I gave them all the same prime civ algorithm. I wrote the code natively, you know, in Python and C++ and C Sharp. And then let them each calculate the primes up to a million as many times as they could in five seconds. And that generates a score. And I would compare them. And spoiler alert, C++ one, Python was third, and C Sharp was in the middle. But I put that up on GitHub, and the response was amazing to it because people came in and they wrote their own solutions that were faster. They added all new kinds of languages. And pretty soon there was a dozen languages, and then there was two dozen languages. And I was getting overwhelmed with just the amount of source code contributions and trying to manage all that and pull requests and everything else on GitHub. So I put out requests for help. And uh, three guys long-term helped out, Rolf, Rutger, and Tudor uh, over in Europe. They took over all the source code control and code reviews and everything else. And they've really nurtured it so that I think there are now 94 different languages, uh, well over 100, maybe 200 solutions in there. And eventually we had to just make a decision, let's pick the ones that follow the rules and drag race, drag race them all. And the system does that every day now. So it builds every solution, it compiles them, it runs them, it tabulates the results and creates a website for that day's reports with all the scoring on it. And I'm going to take that and reveal what the five fastest are. 
That sounds fascinating. And I, I love the fact as well that you've, you've made that a bit of a community effort as well. I mean, I imagine that's probably a big part of your channel, all these people that you're working with around the world and the retro community around these classic computers as well. That must be uh, just, you know, having that collaboration must be really useful. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, my pro channel is effectively nonprofit. I cover expenses and then I donate the rest generally. And so because I'm not doing this to chase money, I think people are more eager to help and contribute their time because folks like Rutger seems to spend like two full-time jobs on it. And he's also got his own day job. So uh, the amount of contributions I get from the community are, are really significant and helpful. And I think the retro community is, it's not close net, but it's small enough that people kind of feel a kinship with one another. Yeah. And it, yeah, I, I love the retro community today. I think in many ways, it feels like these classic computers are more alive than they've been in decades. So, and, you know, it's thanks to channels like yours and the, and the amazing communities that surround retro computing as well. So uh, long mate, continue Dave. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, doing some reminiscing with us and uh, best of luck with the channel. Well, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. 